located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Andrew Zwerneman joins us again. Uh, he is president of Cana Academy and author of History Forgotten and Remembered, a book we covered last year, I think. His new book is The Life We Have Together, A Case for Humane Studies, A Vision for Renewal. That's our topic today. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, thanks a lot, Mark. Great to be here. You know, you're out in Arizona, and I, I hadn't planned this, but let me ask you about uh, the law that govern the governor signed last week uh, that relates actually to schools in Arizona. What happened there? Yeah, it was a great a bit of progress here. The The law that was passed permits parents to have something like $6,500 or so uh, per child to send their kid anywhere in the state to any school that they choose. So it's universal school choice. It's groundbreaking. Arizona was the pioneer state for the charter school movement back in the 90s. And um, the, the wise and visionary people who engendered the uh, the whole charter school movement, which has spread wonderfully across the country, uh, are among the people who are also uh, responsible for this this latest law. So, hats off to Arizonans for taking responsibility for their children's education, and you know, in a good old fashioned American way, opening up the freedom to choose a better school for their kids, uh, for a better future for their families. And that's good for everybody. That's good for the whole society. So hats off to Arizona. Indeed. And I, 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 I presume this main Supreme Court case that was, that was done recently uh, will forestall any legal challenges to parents taking that funding and going to religious schools. There's no rumbling in Arizona about you know, separation of church and state out of this? Uh, well, I think enemies of that legislation sure are, are grumbling about that, but they grumbled about the charter school movement uh, yeah. because it, it any challenge to the status quo that f feeds uh, the impersonal, governmentally uh, directed or, or driven way of doing things uh, is, you know, screamed at. It just upsets people. And, and, and But at the bottom, the bottom line here is that this is really good for kids. It's really good for their families, and it's really good for the future of the state. So I, I'm hoping that the whole country will look to Arizona as a role model for how to open up better school opportunities. And, and it's not just better schools as it was with the charter school movement. It's also the opportunity for new Christian schools to open up. So the listeners of First Things and all people of goodwill who care about the best kind of education for children and for recovering our bearings by way of our cultural inheritance will be happy to hear that there'll be uh, an opportunity, lots of opportunities for the kids to be able to go to uh, schools 
where they can discuss their faith, where they can pray together, uh, where they can study the scriptures and, um, and build authentic Christian culture inside these individual schools. Yeah. You say at the start, to get to the book, that, quote, many people have lost confidence in our Western culture. What are the signs that you see of that happening? Well, I think uh, one sign is active and one sign is kind of passive. And the active one is the assault that we see from things like critical race theory, 1619 Project, Howard Inns, People's History of the United States. We see an increased uh, tribalization of uh, college campuses. Uh, teachers at the secondary level increasingly are, are activists politically, and they're using the classroom as an opportunity to further agendas rather than to you know, train the students in understanding. These are the most egregious expressions, I think. On the passive level, I think just increasingly, and this is something that you've written so eloquently about, in increasingly we have generations of Americans who just don't know. They just don't know what their heritage is. They're, they don't remember what ought to be remembered as a matter of who we are and how we ought to live our lives together. So I say that those two sides of a, of a very bad coin have, have hit us hard in our, uh, but it's, but we can't let go and we can't give in. We, we have to do something in response to this. And, uh, and it's not strictly a matter of political response. It has to be a deep cultural response, which is why I wrote the book. You know, Andrew, I, I find, I found it a very curious phenomenon that teachers and intellectuals who teach, you know, let's be critical about the past, let's acknowledge our sins, and, and let's uh, examine how our, our drawbacks, how they underestimate how important it is for individuals who are coming out of school and into the world to feel like, oh, this is a good culture that I'm entering. It's a good world. It's a place where I can feel some confidence. Here, of course, no world is perfect, of course, but this is a, this is a good existence that I am entering. Do they just simply ignore that, or uh, do they not like that, that confidence? Well, I don't think they like the confidence because it stands in the way of the confidence they want to project uh, themselves. Uh, you know, people who deal ideologically try to deal in a second reality, an alternative reality, and they, they try to cut off our inquiry, our connections, our, our sympathies and, and general set of feelings and understandings, um, all connected to the past, uh, to the origins of who we are as a people, uh, a culture, a civilization, um, even our, our Christian origins are, of course, maybe especially our Christian origins are under assault. So sure, they don't they don't like that confidence that we would like to renew among our fellows. Um, I, I think there's a, um, um, you know, and some of this comes from simply bad education, and uh, students are not studying the kinds of things that help them to know and to feel what they ought to know and feel. One of the reasons for that is. Uh, uh, you know, teachers and college uh, professors are just hammering on classic works of literature and art. They're turning them into political tools, or they're uh, or they're putting them on the cultural chopping block. So I write, for example, about uh, Antigone, uh, uh, the great uh, classical uh, Greek tragedy, which is used uh, oftentimes as an exercise in feminism, 
And uh, I also talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, which is dismissed as an expression of, you know, uh, um, the white, you know, Messiah, the, uh, the white savior. And yeah. uh, both of these are terrible readings of those wonderful works of literature. But both those works, rather, ought to be treated tenderly, uh, sympathetically. And, and the details of the stories need to be grasped by the readers. Students are not being taught to enter into fiction from the inside out, but rather to approach it with a, a political club in their hand. And that's why, you know, books like To Kill a Mockingbird get put on the chopping block or something like Antigone gets used for the purposes, say, of a feminist ideology. Uh, and that's a terrible way to look at literature. And, and you know what? Even when students are being taught that way, I think instinctively they know that that is just rotten. And, and, and if they don't have an argument against it, however, if they don't have an alternative way to read, well, they just let it go. So the, 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 the loudmouths in our culture uh, are getting the better of the students and the students are not equipped to resist it. So the students either join the ideological movement or they just check out. And either way, it's a bad thing for our students. You devote some time to Alexander Solzhenitsyn uh, early in the book, his experience in particular. What... What is it about his experience that applies well to our own situation? Yeah, I lead with a passage from the Gulag Archipelago uh, for very important reasons. Zoltzhenitsyn um, is thoroughly a modern man. Uh, he, um, by the time he was thrown in the Gulag, he, he was an atheist. He had been a dedicated um you know, follower of, of Stalin and the Communist Party in, in Russia. Uh, of course, he, he changed, but he changed through great suffering. And he came to great insight by paying attention to the suffering of his fellow prisoners. And, and so Zoltzhenitsyn is a wonderful role model for how to work through being a modern right inside modernity. So it's not like we can ignore modernity or ignore the fact that we're modern. What Zoltzhenitsyn did so beautifully is he remembered his fellow human being. And these were human beings who were destined by the Soviet Union to be forgotten. They were reduced to prisoners, reduced to numbers. They were put into the most um, egregious situations where they stole from one another. They were violent to one another. They were all destined for oblivion. And Zoltzhenitsyn, uh, under that great pressure, said, no, I'm not going to forget. I'm going to pay attention to the men around me. I'm going to remember their names. I'm going to remember their, their languages. I'm going to remember what they look like. I'm going to remember the countries they came from. This is the most fundamental form of recollection. And it's dead center to what it means to be a human being. He says, you know, you must remember. You must remember. And if you don't, down the line, you will eat your heart out because you'll have, you will have forgotten the very people who need to be remembered. And uh, all of us need to be remembered. And all of us need to remember one another. Uh, Augustine says, the memory is the center of what it means to be a person. It's where we collect what we know and what we love. So while he says we are what we love, it's also the case, yeah, I think he can rightly say that we are what we remember. And what Zoltzhenitsyn teaches us more specifically is that we are who we remember. And this is why it's important for Westerners to remember who they are. They, they aren't non-Westerners, they're Westerners. We, we have a deep, deep tradition that's lasting. Uh, and, the, and the tradition has to do with the most important things. It has to do with love, the, the love of wisdom that was born in ancient Greece, the love of God and neighbor that was born through revelation in ancient Israel, 
the, the love of beauty as was developed in Western art, uh, the love of freedom, uh, even in the modern world, even in the complicated, uh, mixed and flawed world that we live in, that is modernity, we, we've got the, the world's best examples of how to live our lives together in the liberal political order. Again, it's flawed, but people long for freedom. And it, and it resonates with every individual. It resonates with the immigrant. It resonates with the former prisoner. When, when um, Zolzhenitsyn came uh, out of the Soviet Union and uh, somebody interviewed him, he came to the United States and he lived in Vermont for, for quite a few years. And uh, somebody said, what, what's it like being here? And he, and he took a big, a big breath, a big sniff of the air. And he said, you smell that? That's freedom. Hmm. And, and that's as fundamental uh, to a human being as remembering a fellow human being. So he's just a great, a great example for all of us. And uh, there's a sense in which that kind of memory captures the entire project that I, I tried to articulate in the book. And it's, we, we've got to remember, we've got to recollect what's important to us. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. That opening section of, of Gulag you know, the arrest that, that, that is, that is a stunning tour de force of, of, of narration. Everyone should, it is arresting that, that, that passage there. So uh, let me ask you speak of a certain approach to maybe the, to the, to the past as well as the present, you call it a comparativist comparative habit of thinking you refer to Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln as a, comparativist. Uh, you apply comparativist thinking to phenomena such as American slavery. What is this habit of thinking and why is it important? Why is it good? Yeah, so I think the arguably the first great comparativist is Aristotle, who in his politics collects somewhere around 150 plus constitutions. So all the constitutions he could get his hands on and he and his team sifted through them and they delineated six major kinds of polis. And uh, three of them are good in that the, the rulers in those uh, polities rule for the benefit of everyone. The, the bad ones are, are where the rulers rule only for their own benefit. Uh, and this is part and parcel uh, of, a, of a man who had his eye on the good of the human person. As if we're going to if we're going to live well as individuals uh, and we're going to live well as a society, we better look around us and see what's available to us. Uh, Aristotle was sober. He didn't think that we could actually uh, live under the best kind of rulers, uh, a really good monarch or really good aristocrats. He thought more likely we get something like a mix between democracy and democracy. And so, and that's a, a good reminder to us that you don't have to be perfect to be good. But you do have to understand what's good and what needs to be preserved and, and how to drive um, political uh, you know, policy and institutions and uh, culture uh, toward the, the true good uh, of the human person. Uh, 
our founders were comparativists. Uh, the, the most off-sided political philosopher at the American uh, founding were at the, I'm sorry, at the Constitutional Convention was Montesquieu, who was a sort of a, a modern version of Aristotle and that he was a, a constitutional comparativist. They read more history than they did political theory. Uh, and and I, I mentioned that because they were always thinking about uh, precedence. Uh, even in uh, Aristotle's rhetoric, he said, if you, if you were to speak persuasively, to your fellows, you have to know what's happened in the past. They have good examples, right? And that helps illuminate what we're looking at today. Lincoln looked around him and said, look, the, the prospect of, of founding and maintaining a republic in the modern world is exceedingly difficult. It's not going well in France. You know, uh, France is just about the, when Lincoln is writing in the 1860s, France is about to break into its third republic. Uh, it's now in its fifth iteration of republicanism today, that is. Um, he looked around and there, there weren't very good uh, examples of republics that are for the people, by the people, of the people. Uh, but he said, this is, this is worth trying to preserve. It's worth trying to fulfill. And in order to do that, we're going to have to do two things. We're going to have to reunite the Union, which means we have to defeat the Confederacy. But also in defeating the Confederacy, um, we we uh, free the slave. Uh, we also, he also, of course, uh, declared the Emancipation Proclamation. He said, we've got to do two, both those things, free the slave and defeat the Confederacy in order to advance and fulfill and prove true the propositions on which the nation were founded. But he looked around, and he said, it's a very difficult thing to pull off. And um, I think maybe the takeaway lesson there is that uh, uh, we have to work very hard to keep what we've been given. And secondly, we need to recognize that what we have, although it's not perfect, is intrinsically good. Nothing good happens in human relations, uh, justice, love, mercy, education, art, infrastructure. Nothing good is achieved by humans except in the context of society. And uh, that doesn't mean that every society is perfect. It doesn't mean you can't improve society or you ought not improve. Of course we should. That's part of the drama of being humans. But it is to say, but well, you know, fundamentally, we, we move ahead out of the past. And the past is what gives us the existence that we have today. That's why the fundamental act of a liberal mind is to recollect, to recollect what is beautiful, what is true, what is lasting, uh, uh, who God is, who we are as human beings, and, and who we are as a, as a society. Is the opposite of that what you call unhistory? Oh, very much so. Uh, Howard Zinn is the exemplar of unhistory. Uh, he, in fact, denies uh, quite overtly, and I, I, I document this in the book, he denies uh, the reality of nations, societies, uh, political communities as having any kind of value at all. And by doing that, there's, he gives a very sharp divorce between the present and the past. And he distanced us from any sensibility about being Americans. And by reducing that, then he, he can say, okay, then the alternative is to, to declare revolution and create a society that's yet unknown. Uh, and that's a very radical approach, a very um, ideological approach. It's not realistic, though, because that's not dealing with persons. That's dealing with something other than persons. It's not dealing with history. It's dealing with unhistory. And of course, in the field of unhistory, persons get um, expended. They, you know, just like uh, Zoltanitsyn recognized. When you when you have unhistory, which was prevalence 
and uh, dominant in the Soviet Union, persons are entirely expendable. Uh, and hmm. so I think the, the recollection of who we are, that is from our past, and, and an affirmation of who we are as persons uh, go hand in hand. And this is why the assault that Zen, 1619 Project, CRT, and, and others are engaging against our culture is so toxic and so dangerous. You have another phrase uh, referring to history again called, quote, history without goodness. What is that? Well, that's um, history that uh, indulges in a kind of total critique. That is, nothing in the past is worth preserving. And the thing is, we don't know anything about the present except in relation to the past. So if you if you deny our past, you, you really deny us. Uh, and, and goodness is the starting point. Uh, both Augustine and Aquinas, uh, you know, they started from the recognition that our God is a good God and uh, our his creation is a good creation. So no matter how fallen humans are, we start from a reality that's infused with goodness because it's from beyond us. It's from beyond our failings. But then it also inheres in us because we've been created in the image of God and because our dignity has been elevated by the incarnate God. Uh, the, these things have to be remembered if we're to understand the fundamental goodness of our life together. Now, some people say, well, how can you say that if, if I'm not a believer or if lots of people are not believers? What I would say is, um, again, there is no proceeding forward toward justice or toward harmony or toward peace or toward anything good in society apart from the society that's been given to us. And, and the, the Christians among us are, are should be, and uh, I think in large part are, great reminders to everyone that, yeah, we, we need to start from a fundamental recognition of what is good. But, but they also are great reminders of that of the fact that we start from a fundamental recognition that we're also flawed. And so you don't have to be perfect to be good. What you have to do is be committed to what is. And the problem with unhistory is that it's not committed to what is. It's committed to something other than what is. And that's why you and I and any other person is expendable if we stand in the way of the project that's called revolution uh, towards some society yet undefined. Yeah. Uh, you... You next discuss uh, an attitude, maybe maybe an attitude is, is sort of the wrong word, but this attitude you call my culture, the my culture phenomenon. What is that? Yeah, the my culture phenomenon is all around us uh, at the highest levels and coming out of universities and institutions that form uh, people's minds and hearts. There's a, a general acceptance of uh, moral relativism intellectual skepticism, and it, it redounds to the individual who becomes the, um, the only locus for uh, declarations about you know, what is true or uh, what ought to be chosen. And um, I try to counter that by taking the readers through a study of Michael Polanyi's personal knowledge. And it's such a brilliant book because like a I mean, he never called himself an evangelist, but he's something like an evangelist who gets inside the box where somebody is speaking in a certain way and speaks their language right back at them, but in a way that lifts them out of the box. So to talk about personal knowledge, he first of all recognizes that each of us as persons is the agent of learning. 
the ancient, the agent of knowing, and and there is no learning or or, or advancement of knowledge without persons like you and me and, and our students uh, involved in, in in that enterprise. But again, just like with uh, Zoltanitsyn, who challenges us to remember, Polanyi says, remember that um, learning takes place and knowledge is advanced in the context of community. It's it's a relational enterprise that we inherit ways of knowing. Uh, we inherit ends and purposes that are, are permanent and divine and transcendent. Uh, we inherit the ground that we stand on. Uh, I, you know, I use some some everyday examples that I think all the teachers who read the book or, or any of our friends um, in the First Things uh, uh, audience would recognize. So, so you take, for example, a kid who's learning how to play a baritone or a trombone, and, you know, you, you open it and you close the valve to... to uh, to uh, you know, flatten or sharpen uh, a note, or you know, conversely, uh, not conversely, but you know, in parallel form, you know, somebody would do the same by loosening or tightening a guitar string. So you you affect the tone uh, by uh, either one of these manipulations. This is this is established by the the men and women who've made the instruments, uh, the uh, artists who have mastered the instruments the teachers of music, the theorists of music, the engineers who, who have perfected uh, tone in, in, in brass or wood and string, uh, respectively. So the, all the music students inherit this. It's not like some kid for the first time ever comes along and figures out how to, how to you know, tune a baritone or, or tune a, a guitar. Uh, and you can take that example and run it all the way across any field of learning or any practice that comes out of any field of learning. Uh, we're inheritors of these great traditions. And, and this, this is part and parcel of the West. The West, you know, if we think about the, the great lovers of wisdom in ancient Greece, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the whole crowd, we realize that under the impulse of Latin Christianity, philosophy as a way of life, the love of wisdom got a huge rebirth uh, in uh, you know, in the in the lives of, of people like uh, Ambrose and Augustine, and uh, and then there's an explosion of universities, colleges, schools. Uh, later on, we'll call them institutes, think tanks, libraries, uh, publishing houses. Uh, the the learning culture in the West uh, is unprecedented, and this is a great inheritance that our students ought to be able to grab hold of. Instead, today. There's there's a general um, there's a growing rejection of that. It's somehow or another it's supremacist or it's uh, bigoted or it's uh, or it's colonialist. Uh, but in fact, that's condescending to the students. Every student Polanyi teaches ha has what Aristotle recognized a natural affinity for what is knowable. That's that's nature at work. Every student has a capacity to to love what is true and good and beautiful. If we rob our students of that, we rob them of the very heart of what it means to be a person. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the increasing assault on Western culture is really an assault on the students. It's really an attack on them and, and a, a terrible um, imprisoning of the students into a kind of intellectual, moral, and spiritual slavery. You know, well, that goes with the later contention that you say uh, that uh, life in the West is becoming less open, more restrictive. And would you want to connect that to the sort of decay of, of Western respect, of, of respect for 
the West. Yeah. That I mean, what Western societies are are liberal, small L liberal, and you call your own approach a liberal approach in, in that regard, in that you want open open debate. You want to entertain ideas in in not everything is equal, not that, but you 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 believe in the processes of dis, the disinterested examination of art, ideas, and and the rest, but we're seeing less and less in that taking place in the West. Uh, yes, the, the way you uh, very rightly articulated um, the liberal attitude speaks especially to the Western habit of uh, self-criticism. Right. We can't be self-critical. We can't be self-critical if we're open to, if we're not open to the truth, if we're not open to, uh, to any source of knowledge. The, the liberal attitude also um, is born from the, the Christian habit of seeing each person as inherently uh, dignified and each person as inherently a ref the, the locus of what's going on in, in time and space. What is God doing? He, he's, he, he's working in each human being around us. Uh, and then the the liberal attitude also is evident in the individual capacity to be moved by what we ought to be moved by. So the the great cathedrals like Notre Dame were not just for the elite in culture, although they were created uh, from the minds and the and the creativity of the, the elite. They they were also for the commoner. Even the illiterate man could walk into the cathedral and be moved the way he ought to be moved. Uh, so liberal means uh, to be free. That's that's the, the the notion I'm trying to convey in the book, and to be free morally, intellectually, and, and spiritually. And we're not born with that full fledged, developed uh, freedom. We, we have to be educated to, in the broadest sense of the term, with by our families, by our schools, by our churches, by our culture at large. Um, so that that is. Uh, yeah, and that and that notion of freedom is very much under assault. I think uh, uh, it's it's one of the worst things going on around us is that there is a, a rejection of the classical notion of freedom, and uh, that's part and parcel of a terrible forgetfulness. And if we forget that, we forget ourselves. And this is why we need to remember. It's why we need to recollect uh, the best of our culture. Yeah, you you emphasize the necessity of talking about your 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 ancestors and also your descendants. Uh, you you have an interesting paradox. You put it under the demand for including all cultures, the West's opponents commonly single it out for exclusion. Uh, That's we right. certainly see that. There, there there's more that you have. You talk about the film uh, film Tender Mercies, uh, Hidden Life. There there's a discussion of Mark Chagall's painting the White Crucifixion, a discussion of the Good Samaritan. Uh, much, much more to say about the book, but for now, Andrew, <laughs> the, the title is The Life We Have Together, A Case for Humane Studies, A Vision for Renewal. Andrew Zverneman, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot, Mark. I enjoyed being with you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.